Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. So welcome back. We are in the midst of an epiphany series where we look at why do we celebrate this great season of epiphany? So we've been looking at um, like what is epiphany? What are some of the traditions and images that surround epiphany? And now we've kind of transitioned into those places in the Bible, specifically the Gospels, where we meet Jesus and we are something about Jesus is revealed to us as the readers. Um, So we've already looked at the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. So where are we going to today, Erica? So today we're going to be looking at the first words of Jesus, at least the first Public ministry words of Jesus. Let's put it so that this, way. This isn't like toddler Jesus. What was the first word he uttered? Story. No. Right, right. right. Or even, you know, telling his parents, well, wouldn't you expect to find me in my father's house when he's 12? We're not talking that, right. you know, right. that time in Jesus' life. We're talking his public ministry at about 30 years old. Although, you know, I think it's it's worth noting, like, why why are we centering on these things? Why the first words of Jesus, uh, at least the first public words? And it's because kind of like culturally, we sort of assume that like the first things you say to introduce to yourself, somebody say something important about mm-hmm. who you are, what you choose to be first, says something about your priorities in, in um, our family's extended storytelling Um I have a sister-in-law and the family legend is that her first word, her honest to goodness first word was Alleluia. Whether that's true or not, that kept getting told because she grew up to be a choir teacher and music teacher. Uh, and so it sort of fit. It was like, okay, well, you lived into that legend. That was your first word. Um, and I, I, the, I think about that a lot when I think about the ways we're introduced to Jesus in each of the gospels, that each of the gospel writers chooses how they present Jesus to us as first public words as a way of saying something that's fitting about who he is that it's not just sort of random um or or um generic i mean like when, when we meet somebody for the first time and you say hello my name is that doesn't reveal a whole lot but if you say something of substance we are revealing something about ourselves it, it kind of reminds me of so so at least in the elca tradition when you are like in the interview process to become to be called as a congregation's pastor you often are asked to preach to the congregation before your call vote. And that's to kind of give them an idea of like, well, what is your preaching style? But also like, what what are your sermons like? Are they going to give you hope? Are they going to, um, you know, nag you to do something? Are they going to make you feel guilty? Like, what are your sermons like? Yeah. And I know that I have such a hard time to not psych myself out for those. Because like, you know, you can really get into your head about like thinking, oh man, this is a make it or break it sermon. And I'm especially glad that my first sermon ever wasn't for a call vote or anything of super importance. And that I hadn't been introduced to this concept of like, well, your first sermon or like your first public address is a way for a people to get to know you. Um, Because like first sermons don't often go well. (laughs) you know like you have to knew you're inexperienced and you might not have been taught how to deliver a sermon um 
so since we don't know anything about Jesus's education um, and like what he did to lead up to this point to prepare him for this point, um, I have to say I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> like, like this could have gone poorly because yeah. Jesus is 100% human and humans we make mistakes, especially <laughs> when we are inexperienced at something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, good on you, Jesus. I, I almost think like it's helpful to think of this from a, a, a narrator or editor's perspective that in each of the Gospels, uh, you know, what we get as the first words we're told from Jesus aren't necessarily the first words he ever said, but the way that each gospel writer wants to introduce Jesus to us and the things that they want to call our attention to. Um, you know, like the 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 way, you know, in, in a movie, the, the first words a character uh, says or the way they're lit or the way they're dressed may tell us something about that character, but it's not like the beginning of that character's existence. This is how we're being introduced to them. So I, I guess I almost feel like each of the things we're going to look at today can have the feel of more like um, an inaugural address from a president. You know, like once somebody is already giving an inauguration address, they are hopefully well known enough that people have heard them speak and either voted for them or against them. But now like, okay, it's, here's a setting of priorities. Here's what I'm about and here's what I intend to accomplish. So while they may still have a lot of uh, growth to make as they grow into the role, one hopes that there's a certain amount of, of, expertise by that point but they're setting the agenda here is what matters to me and i guess in in my mind when i see each of the things we're going to look at today how each of the gospel writers introduce us to jesus um although one of them does kind of have the feel of a sermon that goes bad <laughs> um in luke's version um that each of them i think is is more focused on here's how jesus sets his agenda or here's what jesus is about in the world um and even though each of the ways the gospel writers do this are very different uh, it's interesting how much they have in common about what Jesus is all about in the world and what things he's not about in the world for that matter too. So should we start with one of the gospels and kind of just briefly touch on each of them? I think that's a good idea. Maybe let's start with what would be the shortest and maybe not the easiest, but the shortest of them. Um, and possibly the first written. Um, Mark's gospel is believed by most biblical scholars to be the earliest of the four written gospels. And he's often a cut to the chase, um, less, less talk, more action kind of a guy. Um, so what, what, what's the opening public words we get from Jesus in Mark's gospel? So, so Mark's gospel is known for being quick and short and like boom, 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 things are happening. So we're still in the first chapter. And Jesus has been um, baptized and then he was drove out into the wilderness and he was tempted. And then after the temptation, starting in verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And that's it. And that's it, the end. <laughs> like, as though, not like this is the only thing he ever said, but like this was his well-known refrain. This was the heart of what the Jesus message was. The reign of God has come near um, to repent and believe the good news, right? Right. And this is, and, I, and I'm trying to remember that this is also the kind of a continuation of John's ministry in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. Yeah. Like this is John's message. Like, and it's not to say that John's the only person 
in this time period that was going around proclaiming that you should repent of your sins and, you know, God's good news is this, that, and the other thing. But like, Jesus seems to have been majorly shaped by John the Baptist, who he's just recently seen, or maybe John the Baptist has been shaped by Jesus coming into the world. It's kind of hard to say who influenced whom at this point. Um, But Jesus's message is one that probably the people who came to hear him first had heard before from John. Yeah. I think it's especially noteworthy to make that connection with John that, uh, as Mark tells it, the introduction of that one sentence sermon is now after John was arrested, Jesus picked Mm -hmm. up his ministry, that it's almost like Jesus takes his cue, like, I know this is going to get me in trouble, but I'm going to do it anyway. Someone needs to carry on with this message as well, that instead of Jesus going, "Uh uh-oh, saying that message about the reign of God coming near got John into trouble, I'll find a different message that's less controversial. He takes up the very same language, the very same imagery, the very same notion that God is doing something new, turn and be a part of it. I think it's worth noting too, that um, we, we sometimes like, um, turn these these words into religious language um like that repenting is is first and foremost a religious thing and the phrase the good news we we turn into like a shorthand for a religious pamphlet um when like these are these are not particularly religious words in the first century even if they've come to be in our in our ears two thousand years later i remember reading a piece by boy it might have been nt Wright, uh but he talks about how that word that gets translated repent um, the, the word metanoia in Greek is the word that other Greek speaking Jewish writers would use to talk about like a change of allegiance. And he uses a really clear example from the writings of Josephus, who'd been a, a general in the, the, uh, like in the, in the Jewish war against, against the, the, um, the Romans at one point. And at one point he gives this powerful quotation of Josephus, who is talking to a bunch of like, uh, rebels who had like uh, like turned away from their uh, commanding officer, and the the speech it gives to them is turn around and give your allegiance to me instead. And the literal Greek is what gets translated here is repent and believe the good news. It's a turn away from that allegiance and said put your trust in me. Let me be your commanding officer. That there's language of allegiance here, um, and that part of what Jesus is saying isn't like I need you to feel sorry for your sins and then do some kind of sorriness ritual and then you know, sign on the dotted line that you believe these religious facts. It's about a a change of allegiance from an old orientation toward a new one, um, whatever it was before, toward this new thing called the reign of God. So it's, it's a short sentence, but there's a lot there to unpack, huh? And, and I think if, if, if at least any of that is in the right ballpark, I think that helps make sense of why John would have gotten arrested um, and why it was dangerous to say things like this. Like if you go around announcing there's a, a new administration or there's a new regime coming uh, and you can be a part of it now, if you're the Romans, that sounds like sedition. If you're Herod, that sounds like there's a threat to your rule and your reign. You're going to want to wipe out or silence anybody saying things like that. And even though Jesus isn't talking about an armed insurrection or um, you know a violent rebellion, Jesus is serious that what he is proposing is nothing short of regime change, sort of, of God's reign over the whole universe. And that Jesus doesn't back down from that when people 
seem threatened by that. Like when people are provoked by it, Jesus doesn't say, "Oh, I, I didn't mean anything dangerous," or "I didn't mean I, 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 I'm completely benign and I'm not, I'm not here to change anything." Jesus understands. Yep, this is going to be provocative and owns that, I guess. And I think that also helps me to understand the people's expectations for a Messiah in the first century was they were expecting a military Messiah. They were expecting someone to come in and overthrow Rome and to give the people of Israel their independence back. And so if this is the language that Jesus and John the Baptist were using of, you know, hey, you should change your allegiance from Rome or whomever to the kingdom of God, you know, I think a lot of people would have heard that as, oh, yes, this is the military Messiah. This is God's anointed. Um, and then when that ended up being not exactly or at all who Jesus was, like he was, you know, Jesus is not a military Messiah, but, you know, does free us and saves us from something even greater than Rome. Um, but I could see why that probably helped the misunderstanding continue of Jesus's identity. Sure. Sure. And in some ways, even the idea of a kingdom or reign where God is the sovereign, that's not new to Jesus or John the baptizer. The, the, the prophets have that imagery of one day God will be the shepherd. You know, one day God will be the king and we'll, we'll tap back into those ancient uh, uh, promises, you know, that God would be the one to gather the people and that what finally will set everything right is not having one crooked king or another, uh, but finally God will be the one to usher in peace and justice and all that. So Jesus Jesus is just saying that wasn't empty talk. It's here. It's happening. But over enough centuries, everybody had seen, well, the way kingdoms happen is you have armies and you conquer people, Mm -hmm. that that's the assumption of what Jesus must be about as well. So you can completely understand both why Jesus uses the language he does. And also you can completely understand why everybody's misunderstanding it when he uses it. So I've never heard this um, military connection to that word repent before. And I find it very interesting. It makes, for me, that just clicks in my head so much more why later in the New Testament, when people were saying Jesus is Lord, Mm -hmm. that's such an affront to Caesar is Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, that I've been, I've heard for years, you know, and I've known that we talk about that, you know, when we get towards Easter and things, but it makes so much more sense now if that word is also connected with that military might and that you know that change of allegiance in the military sense that just makes that click so much more for me there's also a line that occurs to me about this imagery of turning that's in the idea of repenting um it's it's from dallas willard i want to say in his the divine conspiracy where he talks about uh the phrase uh repent and believe in the good news or turn uh you know and believe um he says it's got the feel of if you're inviting guests to a dinner party and they've come into the front door and they're sitting in the living room waiting for dinner to be served, and you say, now turn to the left, the dinner is at hand, you know, like the, the, as if to say the dining room is right here, that idea of when Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, it's less about like, if you do these proper religious actions, you will get access, but it's more like, it's right here, it's happening, folks, mm-hmm. turn and right, I mean, so that it's, it's again, it's less about God demands a sorriness ritual. And again, I think sometimes we hear that language of repent and over enough 2,000 you know, two years of religious people 
using it, we hear that as, oh, I have to go to the front of the church and kneel, or I have to say the you know certain prayer, or I have to do a certain religious act to show my sorry, my my sorrow or my penitence or whatever. In fact, in in the Reformation tradition, um, this is one of those like legends that that Lutherans get told somewhere along the way about the importance of going to the original scriptures. Um, uh, after enough centuries, when uh, St. Jerome translated the original Greek language uh, manuscripts into Latin that became the Vulgate, that was like the standard translation for the Latin-speaking church for, you know, a thousand years, um, the the verb here that's translated repent got translated or misunderstood as do penance, and then as penance became a separate sacrament in uh, the medieval church, this verse got heard by like a thousand years of Christians as, oh, what God wants us to do is perform the ritual sacrament of penance that's go to a priest and confess and do the hail marys they assign and then you can believe in the good news and then you can be saved and if you've heard that for a thousand years you're going to assume oh what god is primarily interested in is that i do this religious action and then that puts me back in god's good graces when that's not what the original is saying at all um and it's there's no mention of a particular ritual or religious action it's it's about turn away from being headed in that direction and turn toward Mm -hmm. this new thing that God is doing right now. And if if that's, again, if that's what's going on, that makes a whole lot more sense of of the context Jesus is in, I think. So there's a lot in that one sentence, but maybe we should spend at least a little bit of time on any of the other three gospels, huh? So um, I always find that Mark and Matthew typically go pretty hand in hand except for the fact that where Mark is short and to the point, Matthew likes to elaborate. Yeah. So um, I think we should go to Matthew next. Sounds good. Now, Matthew does give us that one short sentence we just had from Mark as well. He gives us his own version of the Jesus announcement was the kingdom of heaven, because Matthew likes to say heaven instead of God, uh, has come near. But then he gives us a, like a longer extended speech that we call often the Sermon on the Mount, right? Yes. And for folks who want to follow along, you can find the whole Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's chapter five through seven. We won't go verse by verse through that, but like, it's a pretty sizable chunk of Jesus Mm -hmm. teaching. Yeah, it's almost like um, Matthew uh, or whoever wrote the gospel of Matthew, um, whether his name was Matthew or not, um, it's a little bit like he wanted to, he kind of sets Jesus up in the first four chapters of like, oh, well. Yeah, this is John the Baptist. This is um, uh, this is Jesus's baptism and the temptation. Oh, he called a couple of disciples. And now that we have like those quick, short, introductory things, let's quickly just do a whole bunch of Jesus's teaching so that you know exactly what Jesus is all about. Like, let's um, let's. He he certainly didn't follow that writing um advice of show don't tell (laughs) he very much is just like let me tell you all about it yeah yeah i remember learning somewhere maybe in college or in seminary too that matthew may have an additional um 
structure in mind in the way he sets this up that in the in the course of matthew's gospel you get five big blocks of teaching and that there's some reason to believe matthew's intending to give an echo of the five books of torah to say like that jesus sort of stands in the figure of like being in this new moses figure and just like moses goes up on the mountain to bring down the covenant here's jesus up on a mountain um even though when luke gives almost some of the exact same teaching luke insists it's on a flat level place so like it's less about what was the exact geography and you'll find some biblical scholars trying to find what place in Galilee was both a hill and a, a valley at the same time. I don't think that's the point. I think Matthew's trying to do everything he can to set this up as here's Jesus, the figure in the mold of, Mo- of Moses, who's even greater than Moses, Matthew would say, but as the, the one who gives the teaching or instruction from God. Um, and even though we sometimes translate you know, the, the covenant from Moses, the Torah as law, I think it's better to hear that and translate it as the instruction or teaching, which is closer to the Hebrew anyhow and that then that makes a lot more sense of how jesus sort of is one who is the 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 teacher like moses the one who gives instruction like moses so that like even before he says a word matthew has set this up to be here's somebody who speaks with the authority uh on 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 god's own word or from god's own voice as moses did so then does the sermon does the mount from the sermon on the mount become kind of like zion with moses and then do the Beatitudes kind of become almost a parallel to the Ten Commandments? Like the, well, I, I guess in that regard, like there are certainly going to be some parallels and that like the same way that when Moses comes down from Sinai, there's a whole lot of covenant, but the Ten Commandments are the headline. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount, that like there's a lot of stuff Jesus covers, but like the shot across the bow or the opening headline or almost like again like the inaugural address like here's my platform here's here's what's blessed in the reign of god yeah are the are the beatitudes and again i think that helps um helps frame what these are all about so that instead of hearing all the beatitudes as moral instruction here's what you should be like i think it's more about here's what matters to God or here's the priorities, what God is looking out for mm-hmm. or how God's, God's values or priorities invert the wider world's w- order of things. And I think that's important because each of those sayings that we call the Beatitudes, some of them might be things you might strive for, like being pure in heart or a peacemaker, but others of them I think aren't meant to be things to strive for, but they're conditions that might be thrust upon you. I mean, being someone who mourns, I don't think the point is that sadness is good inherently and that happiness is bad, so much to say God is looking out for the brokenhearted and being blessed are the poor in spirit. I don't think the goal is how can I make myself poorer or emptier, more as when I'm empty, God specifically looking out for the folks who are running on fumes, that kind of thing. And we should definitely not seek out persecution, right? Well, like the last exactly. one is about blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Um, like, I think that especially in American Christianity, we, you know, we, we, look we for hear, that. right. We, we hear all of this stuff about how Jesus is with the underdog and how, uh, and, and how God lifts up the lowly and mm-hmm. cares for the persecuted. Um, and that's good. That's good that God does all of these things. Um, but American Christians aren't persecuted. And so when we start looking for, like, to to experience that persecution, I think we fall into some very big traps. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That, you know, we aren't being persecuted for our faith. Like, right. And... 
like we, we, we just aren't. In fact, we have laws that protect us against being persecuted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, I think that's just a section of here be dragons. Like, yeah. 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 I think it's worth too um, noting. And I'm thinking I'm remembering this was an insight I got in seminary from uh, Mark Allen Powell. I don't know if you had this from him when you had him for classes, Sarah. Um, but he used to talk about how in Matthew in particular, the Beatitudes almost split into two tables or two halves and that both of them end with one about justice or righteousness. And again, the, the Greek can mean either one, but there is the blessed are those who are hunger and hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice. And presumably those are people to whom it is being denied, right? If if you're hungry for it, it's because you don't have it. And then the, the second half are more like uh, practices. So like, you know, being a peacemaker, being pure in heart, or being the kind of person who's willing to suffer for the sake of justice, but not necessarily that you're seeking, like seeking to get into trouble. I mean, like the, the, there's that line that you're talking about, that if if we just like want to cast ourselves as victims so that we can think we're on God's good list, that's that's kind of disingenuous. But if instead it's about the courage to be willing to suffer even for doing right, yeah, I, I think Jesus is sort of laying out this is the this is the way God's people will live in the world, being willing to risk suffering or pain for the sake of others, not that um, I have to cast everything as I'm being persecuted. I guess I think it's also important to note, like how countercultural all the all the beatitudes surely would have heard been heard in a first century context that the the word jesus used that we translate blessed the the greek makarios is the the word you used back in ancient greek to talk about the blissful ignorance of the gods i mean the you know, zeus and apollo who all lived in sort of blissful self-sufficiency on mount olympus those are makarios those are the people who are blessed they're you know they're the ones who don't have a care on the world because they're the gods and here is jesus announcing god's blessing on the nobodies and the forgotten and not the wealthy, not the prosperous. Mm-hmm. And for that matter, these aren't terribly religious either. It's not like those who go to temple every day are blessed. It's more like God's looking out for the nobodies. Um, and to say that this all starts with God's emphasis, that this doesn't start with the list of things you have to do, but more about here's a list of the things God cares about or people God is particularly looking out for, puts the center on God rather than on our, our achievement, I think. I even think that's an important connection back to the covenant with Moses, because even though everybody talks about, um, oh, Moses is the one who gives the Ten Commandments, the opening line of the Ten Commandments is about God. It's God saying, I'm the one who brought you up out of Egypt, therefore you shall have no gods before me. We sort of turn that into, here's ten things you have to do to make God happy, and instead it starts with, I'm God who's already set you free from slavery, now here's how to live as my people. And I think that the Beatitudes have that same feel of rooting us first in who God is, and then what would it look like to live as though that's true about God? Are there other things about the Sermon on the Mount, at least in in broad brushstrokes, that you think help introduce us to Jesus? Um, I find it very helpful that Jesus kind of starts off with, this is how you live a life of discipleship, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Like it starts off with the Beatitudes, yes, but then, you know, it, you know, Jesus talks about anger and adultery and divorce and oaths and loving your enemies and on and on and on. But basically, it's how do you live a life of discipleship? And I think that that's something that Christians have struggled with for, you know, since yeah. all time. So it, I think it's it's helpful to occasionally revisit and 
ask ourselves, well, how do we follow Jesus? And what yeah. does Jesus ask us to do? Yeah. And yeah, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about for me. And that Jesus grounds how we live in the character of God. So even when he gets to things like uh, loving your enemies, Jesus grounds that in this is who God is. And he goes on to say, after all, God is the one who sends sun on the righteous and on the unrighteous and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Therefore, you're supposed to be merciful the same way God is. You're supposed to love the way God is. That's how people will know you're children of the heavenly father. That, that Jesus starts it with, this is how God acts toward the world. Therefore, that's how you'll live. I, I think that's, that's a pretty big deal because in some ways that feels like a pretty major a revision or reinvention of what our mental pictures of God might be, especially if our assumption is God is someone who sends out lightning bolts to zap us when we're wrong, or God is there to help us defeat our enemies. And here's Jesus saying, nope, God's the first one to love enemies. That's why we're supposed to love our enemies. And Steve, you mentioned the kind of reversal that we see in the Beatitudes. That's throughout the Sermon on the Mount, because so yeah. often Jesus says, you have heard it, you know, Sa- yeah. said mm-hmm. X, Y, Z, but I say to you, yeah. And he's putting into proper understanding what the law intended, the intention of the law, not yeah. what the law had become over the years, but what the intention and God's purpose behind listing these things and, and giving these things as law, as um, instructions for yeah. his people. Um, uh, so that's some, always stuck out to me. To some degree, that sounds like the way any rabbi in the first century might have like given their take on the Torah. You know, well, I know Rabbi so-and-so says this, or Rabbi Shammai says this, or Rabbi Hillel says this. Here's what I say. But in another sense, sometimes it, it really comes across like Jesus is speaking with the same authority as Moses, especially if mm-hmm. the thing he says, you've heard that it was said, and then he quotes the Torah, and he'll but, but I say to you, that sounds like Jesus claiming an authority that he's more than just a commentator, but saying something with, with unique authority. Well, shall we talk about the Gospel of Luke? Yeah, let's move on to Luke. So we can find the first words, uh, the first public words of Jesus in Luke's Gospel in what, in Luke chapter 4? Yes. This is like a right after the temptation scene that we uh, kind of talked about last time. I always feel bad for this, for, for this story, right? Like this is Jesus has gone, uh, he began to teach in synagogues and was praised by everyone. And then he goes home and teaches in his synagogue and like those are the words that we actually have recorded is the words that he said at his home synagogue with the people who he knows and it doesn't go well (laughs) at at least by the end this is one of the things that is challenging for me from a, a preaching and pastoral perspective um as someone who uh preaches through the revised common lectionary i love that we get this story every three years when we're centered in luke um but that we break it up into two sundays and i get that too because there's a lot going on and it would be really hard to do justice to the whole story uh but what it means is basically you have a weird plot break and if all you if all you do is come for church the first Sunday or hear the first half, you're like, oh, everybody loved him. Isn't that good for Jesus? And you missed it by the end. They want to throw him off a cliff for what Jesus says the sermon actually means. So I've preached at the congregation that I grew up in. Um, and, you know, there, you're always told in seminary that you should never be the pastor at the church that you grew up in. And I think that that's very wise. Because like, when I preached at my home congregation, I don't think anybody heard what I actually said. 
So, you know, kudos for these people for actually listening to Jesus, because like, I'm pretty sure people were just looking at me and going, oh, that's little Sarah, remember? <laughs> remember when that time that she dressed up like a clown for VBS? Yeah. Oh, wasn't that cute? And look at her, look, look how grown up she looks in her clerical collar. And, you know, so, you mm-hmm. know, kudos for the people for actually listening to Jesus. But also, I think I would have preferred prefer the whole not actually listening to me than like wanting to throw me off of a cliff yeah yeah, right? yeah. like what an extreme reaction yeah well let, let's explore that so at the beginning of the story whether this is the scripture that's chosen for jesus because there's some evidence that ancient um first century judaism may have had something like electionary or jesus chose this passage he reads from what we call isaiah 61 the spirit of the lord is upon me has anointed me to bring good news to the poor uh release of the captives recovery of sight to the blind and announce the year of the lord's favor that's jubilee language and then he sits down everybody's staring at him and he says a basically a one sentence sermon that could have gone very well if it ended there he says today in your hearing this scripture has been fulfilled and at that point Everybody still loves him, right? They're and they're all, isn't this Joseph's son? They're giving the exact same spiel that that you got, right? We remember when Jesus was growing up. Oh, isn't it nice? Mm -hmm. You know, hometown boy done good, that kind of thing. Um, and probably because they're hearing Jesus interpret this as all the good things that I just spoke about, God is showering on you and only you, the people in my hometown, and people like you. And then Jesus keeps talking, and this is where things start to unravel, right? You know, after Jesus is explaining this parable, he says to them, um, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is where there are many, you know, that there were many winners in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three years. And um, yet Elijah was said to none of them except to the winner of Zarephath. So, a Gentile. <laughs> an outsider. Foreigner. Yes, exactly. A foreigner. Somebody who was not part of, of Israel. Um, and he talks about the lepers in the time of Elisha and none of them are clean except for yet again, another outsider, another foreigner. And so, you know, Jesus is pointing out like, all these things that I just read from Isaiah that you think are for you. They're not, I mean, they well, are, but they're not, they're not exclusively for you. And the, the number one boundary, the insider outsider boundary between, you know, the people mm-hmm. like us and Gentiles and foreigners that God is going to cross that line and do good. And, and Jesus doubling down saying, this is in fact how God has always operated and gives those examples, not just for foreigners, like the basically harmless widow of Zarephath, but the other example he gives name in the Syrian is the, the commander of the enemy army. I mean, so like, this is a story of God, God practicing enemy love right there in the old Testament, um, showing kindness to Israel's enemy in the midst of a, a situation. Um, and like, here's Jesus saying, this is God's MO. So if you think that God and God's reign are your private possession, I've got another thing to tell you. God's love is not yours to control, but God reserves the right to go exactly to the people you don't think belong. And it's at this point that people have been following pretty closely because they are so angry at him. Now they want to kill him because he said something that basically God is not your personal private possession. Yeah. So they drive him out of town and prepare to throw him off the cliff. 
Now, like, as far as an introduction, like, if we're just looking at from the, the vantage point of Luke, who's giving this as the introduction, I think that's Luke making a pretty big statement that one, from the beginning, Jesus knows his mission is inclusive of everybody. And mm-hmm. Luke you knows one who particularly will talk about how the mission of Jesus is for all nations. He spends a whole sequel, Acts, talking about how this reaches out to include outsiders and Gentiles and foreigners and Samaritans and Ethiopian eunuchs and everybody else. Um, and that Jesus, from the beginning, also seems to know that announcing that is going to make him some enemies and yet he does it anyway that there's there's no reading the gospels where jesus gets swept up and doesn't realize oh i didn't know i was going to be so controversial i'm so so sorry let me say something polite but that all of them in one way or another know jesus is saying something pretty controversial or countercultural, and is courageous enough to do it anyway and to risk whatever consequences will come of that even if it's a cross and we've said this before in other podcasts, you know, when we talk about the gospels, they're all written to different audiences. Yeah. So when we're talking about the Beatitudes and we're talking about their comparison to the law and to the Torah and, and all those things, that's because Matthew's writing to a very Jewish audience. Luke's inclusion of foreigners and Jesus talking about how this promise from Isaiah isn't just for Israel, but for foreigners speaks to Luke's audience. He's writing to Greeks. Yeah. He is Greek, you know, um, so he's writing to a much broader audience than say Matthew or, or Mark or, um, you know, as the other gospels, yeah. the other synoptics. So that's maybe a good introduction to Luke. Should we say a brief word about the way John introduces us to Jesus publicly, even if it's not quite <laughs> the way Jesus had seemed to intend to launch his public career? John tells a completely different kind of story, right? So John doesn't give us a sermon. <laughs> Right. Right. We, when we had talked about this very briefly re- recently, right? Like we had talked about the wedding at Cana. Um, kind of when we were in the, the other stories uh, back in Jesus' childhood, or we talked about those mm-hmm. early, other early stories, we kind of gave a nod to it, huh? Yeah. So this is very much Jesus and family and disciples are at a wedding. They run out of wine and Jesus's mother is all like, you need to help this situation. And Jesus is all like, no, mom, my time isn't come yet. Hold your horses. And Mary's just all like to the servants, do what he tells you to do. And so Jesus is kind of forced into helping out at this wedding and turns water into wine. And it's a miracle. It's a sign of his glory. That's the the, the key thing at the end, right? Because John, when he tells a story that's miraculous, John will stop and go like, this wasn't just a cool thing or a trick. This was a sign. And and John is convinced there's something to be learned about who Jesus is from the things that he does. A lot of the time later on in John's gospel, he'll accompany whatever the sign is with Jesus giving a whole speech using the metaphors. of. So, you know, when he feeds the 5,000, he's now I'm going to give you a speech about being the bread of life. Or when I, you know, open somebody's eyes who's born blind, I'm going to give a speech about being the light of the world when i raise lazarus from the dead i'm gonna give a speech about being the resurrection and the life that there's that same kind of these aren't just cool tricks or spectacles uh but they show something about who jesus is which is weird because jesus didn't intend for the day to go that way that's one of the things i think is so interesting is that it's like the the accidental miracle or the 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 reluctant miracle that jesus didn't want to do and then does because his mom guilt trips him (laughs) And it's not that he doesn't want to because he's mean. It's not like Jesus is stingy and I'm saving my miraculous power for later, mom. Um, but it's more, I, I, at least I think there's like, 
this is a weird place to launch your public career um, for what is a non-life-saving kind of a situation. Jesus has a way of usually doing things that are where there's clearly high stakes. You know, the people are hungry and they need to be fed or Lazarus is dead and needs to be brought back to life. It's a clear, yep, this needs to happen. But they've run out of wine at a week-long celebration where they've already been drinking for a while. That's a harder case for why this is so urgent, mom. And yet he does it anyway. Well, it might not hold the urgency that Lazarus and the, you know, healing the blind or the deaf or the lame. Um, But I mean, a family's reputation is on the line. Sure, sure, sure. And the fact that Jesus is concerned for how this couple is perceived in their whole extended family, that says Jesus cares not just about your physical well-being, but about Mm -hmm. dealing with the shame and all that. I mean, I think that that is an important piece, the same way Jesus cares about Zacchaeus, who isn't bleeding, but is sure cut off from everybody in his life because everybody looks down on him as a tax collector. Yeah. I think something that I really like about this story is that the Gospel of John is very much concerned or lifts up, emphasizes the divinity of Jesus, Mm -hmm. that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus has been, it is God, has been here since the beginning, that it's not like Jesus began or like came into existence with his birth, but rather extends way back to the creation or before the creation. And yet, Jesus begins his ministry in this gospel in a very human way, right? Mm -hmm. Like that he's saying it's not his time. And just like baby birds get pushed out of their nests, there's Mary going, yep, it is your time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, or even just that, like to set the whole, the whole situation up that Jesus has to be the kind of guy that people invite to a wedding, you know, that like mm-hmm. people thought of Jesus as someone they wanted to be at their party. It's not, it, we don't get any sense that he's the officiant. It's not like he's the one who, you know, uh, 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 you know, was the rabbi officiating it. He's just a friend. He's Mary's plus one. He's his mom's plus one at the wedding. And he's the kind of person people wanted to be at parties. Well, maybe not even a plus one. Like he's, <laughs> Mary is there, but so is his disciples. Right, like, yeah. Which seems to say that he is well-liked enough and people want him there to be at the party that they're willing to be all like, oh yeah, sure. Those uh, teenage kids that are following you around and calling you rabbi, sure, they can come too. <laughs> Bring 12 of your friends, Jesus. Yeah, but like- <laughs> right. And, and the other gospel writers will get at that joyfulness of Jesus in other ways, in the way Jesus gets a re- reputation for being the center of parties with all the wrong people. But John sort of is, is giving a nod toward that right away, and that Jesus doesn't just go to parties with the sinners and tax collectors like he's doing charity work, but that Jesus was genuinely someone people wanted to be around. I think sometimes we have a way of like refining the the joyfulness out of Jesus sometimes in organized religion and making him seem like mm-hmm. he was stodgy and dour faced all the time and scolding people about their sinfulness. When you don't actually get that impression to read the gospels, he's the life of the party wherever he goes. I guess I'm that... just imagining buddy Jesus now from dogma. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Party Jesus. I guess I feel like th- that, that to me is, is a reminder too, for our life as, as, the church as, as, you know, organized religious leaders, um, that like, if, if the kind of community we are creating never has that sense of joy, like there's something that is disingenuous or disconnected with the actual Jesus. Um, and if the, our, the way we're living together as community is nothing but like perpetual sadness and sorrow and somberness, I think we've lost connection with this part of who Jesus really is. Um, and that, that, that is like an important gut check, I think. 
So four different ways of being introduced to Jesus, sometimes through extensive teaching, sometimes short teaching, sometimes the reluctant miracle goaded by his mom, but all of them ways of getting to know who Jesus is. We're going to take another look next time at another final way we're introduced to Jesus by who he calls to be his followers. So join us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye. Bye.